It's Thursday, April 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. State of emergency declared at the Arizona border. Governor Doug Ducey has blamed the Biden administration for the surge in illegal crossings and said that about 250 National Guard troops would be deployed to help local law enforcement that is overwhelmed. While unaccompanied minors continues to be a problem, Arizona is seeing an influx of single adult males. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, we might be hitting another snag in the vaccine rollout. Too much vaccine. Some states are starting to see the supply of doses exceed the demand. The pace of vaccinations has flattened out at about 3 million per day, as states are starting to see too many open vaccine appointments. Rachel Rubine, health reporter at Politico, joins us for how the strategy is changing to get more people vaccinated. Finally, get ready for the forever maskers. There are pockets of people that have indicated that despite the easing of mask wearing rules and increased vaccination rates, they will most likely be wearing their masks far beyond the pandemic. Reasons vary, with many saying that they have avoided the flu and other illnesses and want to keep that streak going. Eve Pizer, writer at New York Magazine, tells us about those who won't be putting their masks away just yet. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. President Biden, you should declare a national emergency and deploy the vast powers of your administration to stop what's happening here. Joining us now is Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Alicia. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about uh, immigration. There was some action by Arizona. The Arizona governor, Doug Ducey, declared a state of emergency at the southwest border. There he's going to deploy about 250 National Guard troops to help local law enforcement. Obviously, we've been seeing increased numbers of migrants coming to the border, a lot of unaccompanied minors coming to the borders. So it's become this crisis that hasn't been called a crisis, let's say, by the administration, but it's increasingly becoming a problem for housing these kids, housing the other migrants, sending them back. You know, it it is kind of a mess again, as it usually ramps up every time of the year. So, Alicia, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing in Arizona that caused this order to be enacted. So, as you described, it's a bit of a mess. It's not new, but it's happening again. So, in Arizona, you've got two Border Patrol sectors, Yuma and Tucson. So, the state's not quite divided in half. Tucson is a much bigger landmass area for Border Patrol. But you've got a lot of single adults coming through Tucson and a lot of families and kids coming through both areas. What's happening effectively is Border Patrol doesn't have any room to hold them because of the pandemic and limited space. You don't want to put people in crowded Border Patrol stations. It's never a good idea to put children in those facilities, according to Border Patrol. They're not designed for them. They're not designed for families either. Then you add the pandemic, and and they're out of space. So they're putting up tents as we speak. One has gone up in Yuma. These are big 30,000-square-foot Tents divided into different pods where families and kids and single adults are held, primarily family and kids. They're only supposed to be there for 72 hours, a maximum of 72 hours. They're often there in terms of the kids for longer because Border Patrol is in a bit of a pickle, if you will, to sort of, I don't want to be glib about it, but they can't release children. The children have to be sent off to another government agency, the Department of Health and Human Services, and there's a backup there. So you've got all these different backups happening. 
And in Arizona right now, the big concern from local governments and some small towns is that families are being released in their communities. No one is staying in those communities. No one is staying in Ajo, Arizona, which is in the middle of the desert, north of the border, but doesn't have any infrastructure to handle folks. Same with a town north of there called Gila Bend. Those migrants then will be taken to Tucson or Phoenix, where they'll be sheltered by non-government organizations, and they'll be helped you know, along their way into the interior of the U.S., wherever they were headed. But again, the problem is that there are a lot of people. In Tucson, as I said, it's the big issue is single adults. There are lots of them coming across the border illegally. But you do have that mix of families and kids as well. You know, a lot of times when we hear about stories, uh, you know, people coming to the border, the first inclination that people think of is Texas. And they're the only really place where we've seen some pictures of some of these centers where the kids are and where some of the adults are being held. Have we seen anything like that in Arizona? Any, any pictures or optics from that? We've not seen pictures, but it's a different situation in Arizona. What you're seeing in Texas is not what you're seeing in Arizona. So you don't have significant groups of people, meaning 100 or 200 people at a time, surrendering to the Border Patrol the way you do in South Texas. In Arizona, like I said, it's, it's a lot of single adults crossing. Right. So those single adults can be turned around. They can be actually sent back across the Mexican border under a, a public health law called Title 42 that allows the government to expel them back to Mexico. No harm, no foul. You're just pushed back into Mexico, regardless of whether or not you're from Mexico, so long as the Mexican government will accept you. With the families, some of those folks are sent back as well. None of the kids can be sent back because the the Biden administration has, has decided that they will not expel unaccompanied kids. So you don't have the same volumes. You have different problems in Arizona than you have in, in Texas. And so the National Guard will be deployed you know, soon. It's going to take a little bit of time for them to get mobilized there. There's always mixed feelings when the Guard is being deployed, the money aspect of it. The two Democratic senators from Arizona actually said that this was a, a good decision. They agreed with it, at least, and said that there is some support needed there. But uh, what are they going to be doing? Because uh, that's always the big question. You know, why bring in the guard? What are they going to be doing? So they're actually joining other DOD assets that are already there. It's important to remember that under President Trump, the National Guard was deployed along with active duty military. And National Guard has been deployed over the course of years since really the Bush administration in earnest. Uh, H, uh, excuse me, W. Bush, President George W. Bush. So they're joining some already deployed resources at the border, but they're not allowed to do any immigration enforcement. They're not allowed to do any law enforcement. They're going to help with monitoring cameras, deploying cameras. According to the governor, they'll help in detention facilities in terms of medical care, providing medical care, because obviously in the midst of a pandemic, that's a significant issue. And you do have a lot of people who come across the border who are in need of medical care aside from the pandemic. It's a treacherous trip, so it's not unheard of for someone to be injured along the road. But it's incredibly important that we stress the National Guard can't enforce immigration or really help with immigration enforcement because of a variety of laws, posse comitatus. You're not allowed to conduct law enforcement as U.S. military in the U.S. in this setting. So they're there to help and augment. And really, in this deployment, they'll be there to help and augment local law enforcement and state troopers and, and so on. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
months of seeing kind of appointment websites crash and seeing and hearing anecdotes of people waiting around at pharmacy counters hoping to get leftover doses. And now state, local, and federal officials are really trying to make a twist and meet people where they are. Joining us now is Rachel Rubin, health reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. So we're starting to run into another problem when it comes to vaccines. Now, you know, after a lot of states have really expanded their tiers, everybody's more eligible to go and get those vaccines. We're starting to run into the problem where states are having too many vaccine doses. The demand is not as high as the supply that we once had at the beginning. It's kind of the inverse of the whole thing now. And states are coming up with different ways of how to get the word out that we still have the vaccines. It's important to get it done and you should go get it. So, uh, Rachel, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. Yeah, exactly what you said. The supply of COVID vaccines is now exceeding demand both in rural areas and big cities. And what was interesting was when we were doing some reporting this week, we were talking to state and local officials who all expected this to happen, but it had actually happened earlier in the quest to vaccinate 300 million Americans, over 300 million Americans than they thought. So it is kind of a jarring twist after months of seeing kind of appointment websites crash and seeing and hearing anecdotes of people waiting around at pharmacy counters hoping to get leftover doses. And now state, local, and federal officials are really trying to make a twist and meet people where they are. And, you know, we've spoken a lot on the podcast about vaccine hesitancy for a number of reasons. Some of it is political. Some people just don't trust the government. Other people don't trust the, you know, the pace that the vaccines were made. But by and large, they've been very effective. They are safe. More people are getting it. I know a lot of people were saying, well, I want to wait till more people get it. We've reached that point now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like uh, it's hard to figure out that new tactic. So this is exactly what a lot of these states are, are working towards, figuring out what that new campaign is and how to do it. So what are some of the states doing exactly? You mentioned taking the vaccines to them, but what else are we seeing out there? Some of the things that my colleague Dan Goldberg and I heard about is in a peninsula in Alaska, emergency medical service personnel um, are bringing the vaccine to kind of any house or business with three or more people who want it. In New Orleans, we heard of the city partnering with a bar to do uh, shots for shots promotion. So giving out a different kind of shot after you get the vaccine. We talked to officials in North Dakota who were working on piloting pop-up clinics at Walmart. And we also heard more in, in Louisiana, and this was a message that we heard from other local and state officials, was working on smaller scale events in neighborhoods, churches, and community centers, and working with trusted community members who can help spread the word, such as physicians, providers, primary care, doctors, etc., what have a lot of these states said when it comes at least to the part of the Biden administration and figuring that out? Governors, centers, public health experts that we talked to said that the White House can't rely on the same strategy it used when supply was constrained, going back to trying to meet people where they are, having trusted messengers. The Biden administration says that they have put $3 billion towards investing 
investing in uh, vaccine confidence and launch a new volunteer core. My colleague, Dan Goldberg, talked to, for example, Senator John Tester, a Democrat from Montana, who said that like trusted members of the community play a big role here. He also added that he'd like the CDC to more explicitly link vaccines to a return to normal life. And the Biden administration's goal has been to return closer to normalcy by July 4th. Rachel Rubine, health reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. She said that it's a way of relieving anxiety in a similar way that having a drink after a long day at work relieves anxiety or going running or any sorts of behaviors that people do to be less stressed out. Joining us now is Eve Pizer, writer at New York Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Eve. Thanks for having me. Currently, just over half of the American population has been vaccinated, at least one dose of the vaccine. Many are on their way to their second. So we're getting uh, some good numbers out of that. And, you know, obviously the country is starting to slowly reopen. Regulations are starting to be lifted in a lot of places. Some places still continue uh, the mask wearing and all that stuff. And, and health experts say we should be wearing masks still and social distancing. But, uh, you know, everybody, a lot of people are still waiting for that moment where you can rip off the mask and don't have to worry about it anymore. But Eve, for a recent piece that you wrote, you spoke to people who uh, were calling the forever maskers, people who say that even when the pandemic is over, they plan on wearing masks for a long time to come. So, Eve, tell me a little bit about that. So I found some people who wanted to wear masks after the pandemic ended, and they all kind of had different reasons. Some people, it was as simple as they hadn't gotten a cold since the pandemic started. Yeah. And they wanted to keep it that way. But I think for others, there was more emotional complexity and it was kind of had to do with how traumatized they've been by what's happened over the past year. Yeah, let's start off with the first one, because I think that's the easiest one to understand. A lot of people might even feel very similar. I, I know I do. I haven't really had any major illness, flu, cold, anything like that. I think we saw flu rates plummet this past year, like almost really no flu season that happened in part because a lot of people were wearing their masks. So there was a few people that you spoke to. Uh, I think uh, Michael Bizarro, he's a Colorado teacher in particular, said, hey, this has been working for me. I want to keep it going. Michael Bizarro has a job that involves interacting with kids. And I'm sure we can all remember that when we were kids and went to school, you just got cold after cold. So yeah. I thought that his reasoning made a lot of sense. And I mean, my interview with him was longer and I obviously didn't get to include all of it in the article, but he said that his fiance works in public health. So it's something that he's been really conscious of and he's been really focused on keeping their household safe. But that's also been hard because he's the choir director for the school. And that's the one time at school <laughs> where he can't wear a mask. But still, just this one change for him, I mean... I think for me, when people said, oh, I haven't gotten sick since I started wearing a mask, in my head, I was kind of wondering, well, there are other things at play. Like you're it, during the pandemic, you're just interacting with a lot less people than you normally would. But I think 
Michael Bizarro kind of presented a compelling argument because he's interacting with the same amount of kids as he was before the pandemic. But there's been this one big shift that has changed his life for the better. One of the psychologists that you spoke to about it says that the pandemic kind of gave everybody almost like an anxiety disorder. And wearing the mask is this safety behavior that can alleviate some of those anxieties. You feel like if I'm wearing the mask, I'm at least doing the most I can to protect myself. And there was a few common threads that people had that kind of surrounded that. that They were trying to calm those anxieties down. I mean, I think with the pandemic, there are a lot of behaviors you can control to make your risk of getting this disease less likely. But most of it is pretty much out of your control. And so... I think that wearing a mask makes people feel proactive. And the psychologist I spoke to, Lena Pearl, she said that it's a way of relieving anxiety in a similar way that having a drink after a long day at work relieves anxiety or going running or any sorts of behaviors that people do to be less stressed out. But I think that she also made a really important point which is the psychological benefits of getting to see other people's faces and how that can actually be something that helps you feel more calm. Because if you're walking down the street and you see a stranger and you see their face and they smile at you, it can kind of put you at ease and say, okay, like I see strangers all the time and these people don't actually pose any threats to me. I'm one of those people I'm ready to take the mask off, you know, just to kind of go back to normal. But I've kind of long posed that question. I never thought it would be something cultural here in the United States, but we've seen it in a lot of Asian countries where mask wearing is just kind of part of their everyday life. And I've long thought that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to hold on to that. Not everybody, obviously, but a lot of people still wanting to keep those masks on. Yeah, I mean, I think that the pandemic has shifted life in all these profound ways and it's made people be more insular and it's made their world smaller and made them afraid of the public and like scared of strangers and I think that even as more and more people get vaccinated and rates and deaths continue to go down those feelings won't just go away One of the people I talked to, this really lovely woman named Robin Argenti, had like a really traumatic pandemic. She had a really close family member die. She didn't really get to see anybody. She said she hadn't touched anybody in over a year. And she had previously been kind of agoraphobic before the pandemic. And then the pandemic affirmed all those fears that she maybe once thought were irrational about being afraid of being in public spaces where she was learned like, no, public spaces (laughs) really are threatening. Yeah. And now she's going to do everything she can to hold on to that safety net in the mask. Yeah. She, you mentioned that she's one of the people that are going to be having this on for a long time. So I think we'll see, you know, as all the regulations do start to get eased, you know, we'll start to be able to point out those people that are going to be the long haul mask wearers. Eve Pizer, writer at New York Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diary is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.